If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4. It seems uh, each week we're taking smaller chunks uh, so far, but I, I don't want to rush through this section. We've been considering a mini-series within a fuller series, an exposition of 1 Timothy, but a mini-series of marks of a good minister. This will be part three, and I think there will only be four parts. There will be one more installment coming next week, Lord willing. Um, but I think it's good to take this slow. Um, I have already mentioned to you that several of the admonitions to Timothy as a minister um, apply to all of us individually, the principles and the commands that are given here, and obviously in particular to ministers. And in some sense, we're all ministers, aren't we? We all serve if you're in the body of Christ. One prevailing theme that seems to come up again and again through here is that this whole section intertwines the necessity of faithfulness in public ministry on the one hand, but faithfulness in private life on the other. And that's going to come out very clearly in our text today. Our doctrine ought to be confirmed by an upright, consistent life. All too many Christians negate their profession by how they live, and it brings shame to the name of Christ. One of the vivid pictures of this that's in my mind is from Pilgrim's Progress, which is probably one of my uh, all-time favorite books. And this particular section I'm going to read from is probably my favorite section in Pilgrim's Progress, and it's the part called Interpreter's House. In Interpreter's House, Christian is led forth and he's shown several seven things, and a candle is lit to illuminate the way, and the very first thing he is shown is this. Reading from Pilgrim's Progress. Now Interpreter led the pilgrim into a private room, And there he ordered his man to open the door. Then did Christians see the picture of a very grave, that is a serious or an important person, hanging against the wall. And its features were as follows. The man had his eyes directed to heaven, the best of books in his hand, the law and the truth were on his lips, and the world was behind his back. He stood as if he pleaded with men, and a gold crown hung over his head. Christian asked, what does this mean? The interpreter said, the man in the picture which you see is one in a thousand, who can beget children and travail in birth with children and nurse them himself when they are born. And just as you see him with his eyes looking to heaven and the best of books in his hand and the law and truth written on his lips, This is to show you that his work is to know and unfold dark things to sinners. Similarly, just as you see him stand as if he pleaded with men, you also notice that the world is cast behind him and that a crown hangs over his head. This is to show you that in slighting and despising the things of the present on account of his love and devotion to his master's service, He is sure to have glory of his reward in the world to come. It's a snapshot as Pilgrim sets out in his pilgrimage to the celestial city. There will be many that will come along trying to tell him, this is the way, take this shortcut, come this way. You know, Miss Morality says, no, you can keep the law, come down here. 
And so at the very beginning here, he's shown this is the man that you want to look for. This is, these are the principles of a godly man. A godly minister is really what he's pointing out here. And godliness is vital for a minister. John Owen says, A minister may fill his pews, his communion rolls, and the mouths of the public. But what a minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is and no more. You see, it's not about church growth programs. It's not about marketing. It's not about how full we can get the church. Those aren't the marks of a successful minister. A successful minister is one who um, dispenses his ministry in utter faithfulness and dependence upon God and demonstrates a life of godliness. So let's read the text before us. This Today we'll be taking up only verses 11 to 13, but I will read through 16 for us. Chapter 4, 11 to 16. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the reading of Scripture and to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. So taking up only verses 11 to 13 today, the title of the message is Doctrine Confirmed by a Pure Life, and taking up just 11 to 13, but I'd like to pray before we move on. Would you bow with me? Our great God in heaven, we thank you that you have commanded us to meet together in this fashion, Lord, that you have brought us together in this facility, and Lord, that you have given us the common bond of the Lord Jesus Christ and being rescued from our sin. Lord, as we gather together now to come under the hearing of your word, we pray that you would remove distractions from the preacher and from the hearer alike. And Lord, that we would come, that we would absorb, that we would soak in every word and every command and every admonition that is here in our text before us. And Lord, not just that we would soak it in, but that we would do those things of which we were commanded. Lord, we pray that you would meet with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a very quick review back in chapter or verse 6 of this section. He talks about, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and of sound doctrine. Timothy is told to nourish himself on the word of God, to educate and to train his mind. This is his very food. This is how he is fed spiritually. In verse 7, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And we spent a great deal of time on that. And then in verse 8, the saying here, he talks about for bodily discipline is only for little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise of the present life and also for the life to come. The very mention of eternal life throws 
uh, Paul into writing, why is it that we pour our lives out for the Gospel? And he says in verse 10, for it is for this eternal life that we labor and strive. And how do we do this? Because we fixed our hope on the living God. That's the energy. That's where the strength comes from. And then that takes us to our section today in verses 11 to 13. So as we continue today, we'll see eight commands in this section, verses 11 to 16. There's eight imperatives. We'll see half of those today. Matthew Henry has said, those who teach by their doctrine must teach by their life. Else they will pull down with one hand what they try to build up with the other hand. You see what he's saying there? That a life that's contradictory to the things of God um, is not going to be profitable in any way. Excuse me as I'm striving for the light. Readjust this light here. So, no one can, if you've been a Christian for any time, no one can deny here that the vital connection between living a godly life, living an upright life before a fallen world, and how important it is to have that consistency of life and doctrine. Timothy would be powerless to defend the Christian doctrine of which Paul has been telling him again and again and again and again if his life doesn't match his doctrine. He's not going to be effective. Richard Baxter has observed, there are too many men who are ministers before they know how to be Christians. Too many men that are just, they get that paper, they're you know, right out of, barely out of high school, seminary, 22 years old, ready, and they don't even know how to really live the Christian life and to live in a way that's honoring to the Lord. So we're going to take up these few verses today under just two simple points. And the first is, To handle the word with authority, and that authority, of course, comes from God. And secondly, does your life support your professed doctrine? So first in verse 11, he is told, command and teach these things. Verses 11 and 13 will be under the first head. Now, the first word he uses here, it's translated prescribe in the NAS version, that you might think of a pharmacy. Well, do I go to the doctor and have something prescribed? How is it prescribed? Uh, a better translation would mean to command or instruct, for that's how it was translated in chapter 1 and verse 3 in the, when the letter began. He says, so that you instruct certain men not to teach false doctrines. Command certain men. It's not prescribe certain men. It's to command them not to teach these false doctrines. The Apostle Paul commands um, his young servant Timothy here, and and, and he's in a very real way giving apostolic authority to Timothy as the head of the church over Ephesus. Timothy is now to command on the authority that the Apostle Paul had, which came from God. The second word is simply to teach, didasko means to provide instruction, whether in a formal setting or an informal setting. It could be, it could be either or. Um, but both of these are imperatives, and they're in the present tense. And so the idea uh, here is train yourself for godliness, or keep on commanding and teaching these things. Now, what are the these things here? Well, it's what we just talked about in our review here. Nourish yourself by the word. Train yourself for godliness. Fix your hope on God. That's where your strength is going to come from. 
This is a good reminder that biblical elders really do have some spiritual authority here. The words that are used here, the commands and the imperative voice and and all of that command and to teach these things. It is their responsibility to faithfully instruct the congregation and to lead them in the right way, to point them to the scriptures on the authority of God. So, that's verse 11. Verse 13, he goes, and he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. I tuck this under with verse 11 because there's um, words, the words fit uh, in agreement here. So, until I come, did Paul expect to really come back to Ephesus? I think he really did. He really did expect to turn back to chapter 3 and verse 14. You'll remember right before uh, the really the purpose statement of the whole letter of First Timothy, which is found in three fifteen and verse fourteen, he says, "I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long." He really did have a hope that he would come back, that he would come back to his true son in the faith, to be an encouragement to him, to give further instruction to him. He realizes the work is hard. He realizes that he's young. He realizes it's difficult. And to give admonitions through letter can be difficult. It's like if you have a daughter that goes away to college and she's 17 or 18 and some mile, hundreds of miles away. You you, you want to go to her. You want to help instruct her. But you're trying to do it through a letter. And that's what Paul's limitations here are. Now, what does he tell him? Until I come, I want you to do something, Timothy. And it's very important. I want you to give attention, the NAS has it translated, give attention to three things. The public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Now the word give attention, uh, it's, that's a fairly good translation. It means to occupy one's mind with. Fill your mind with these things. Occupy your mind. It's not just pay attention for a moment and then turn away. Occupy your mind with these things. Uh, Devote yourself. Apply yourself to this. And it's an imperative. Timothy, listen to me. Fill your mind. Apply yourself to these things. They are so important. They're of paramount importance. Give attention to this. This is to be a way of life for you, young Timothy. The word that's translated, give attention in the Greek, There's um, some outside Greek usages that's very helpful because the word only occurs a few times in the New Testament. And it was used in the first century where a father was writing to his son and said this, Give your undivided attention to your books, devoting yourself to learning. And so a father giving instruction to the son undivided attention devoting yourself to learning and that's that's the force of this word give don't give it superficial attention timothy don't give it weekly attention timothy give it your full attention the public reading of scripture to exhortation and to teaching furthermore this verb implies that there's some previous preparation it's not just you pay attention to publicly reading the scripture, but there's, there's a preparing, there's the, uh, preparing the, in the hard work of study 
that's associated with it. It's not just the act of teaching. It's all those many, many hours that lead up before the act of teaching, of wrestling with the text and what it says. Well, Paul says to give attention. Give attention first to the public reading of Scripture. Now, you'll notice in the NAS at least, public in Scripture is in italics. That means that it's actually not in the text. However, the word for reading, the Greek word, has the article and in other places that clearly means the public reading of Scripture. For example, in Nehemiah 8, when there was reading and all the people of God were listening to it, it's translated in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used. So it is that strong to where the NAS will supply these words to help capture the meaning. The public reading of Scripture. Now think about it. In the days of the first century, were there copies of Bibles laying all over the place? No. To have a copy of the Scriptures was a very, very rare thing. And so the people would gather together in a typical synagogue service, for example, and the law would be read. The prophets would be read in the hearing of all the people. And in some cases, that's the only time the people heard the Word of God throughout the week. We see an example of this in Luke chapter 4. Don't turn there. But speaking of Jesus, when he comes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read, and a book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. You remember he reads from Isaiah 61, says this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the idea of Scripture here in the public reading, when it says the reading, it means the reading of something that is authoritative from God. And so the law, the prophets, all of the Old Testament would be included in this. But also, the New Testament, as it was being written, would actually be added to this. We see, you remember we studied First Thessalonians two years back, one of the earliest letters that Paul ever wrote. Well, at the very end of that letter, what does he say? 527, he says... I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. Have it read. Have it read in the public place so that all will hear what I'm saying. It's not just to the elders and pastors and deacons of that church. All the people were to hear it, and so it was to be read. So as the New Testament was taking form and being written, these would be added to those readings and become commonplace. Turn to Acts chapter 13. One more example of this. And verse 13, 14. Speaking of Paul um, and Barnabas having just been sent out, says, but going on from Perga, they arrived at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, say it. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, says, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. And he launches out into a sermon. And of course, at the end of this, we see the various responses that were there. And it says that 
Um, as many as who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Some believed, some thought, well, that's interesting, and some hardened their hearts to the message. But essentially, the word of exhortation was preaching, the act of preaching, and then the application of the Old Testament scriptures in this case, in a public fashion. And back to First Timothy, you know, the, the idea of the reading here, it is so clear that this is speaking of when the church gathers together, and why churches today, it's actually alarming, churches today remove the scripture reading. We had a few scripture readings and a call to worship already. The reading of scripture is powerful. These are the words of life. This is God's word. And to say that, well, we just don't have time for that but because you have know, the drama skit, we have this, we have that, and we have an hour of music for you, a performance. So we're going to take out the reading of scripture. And there's many churches that have fallen into that, violating the clear imperative here, the public reading of Scripture. Now, what is Scripture? Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is inspired by God, right? And it's profitable, speaking of the whole Old Testament and New Testament, the canon of the Scriptures. So the next word he uses, public reading, very important. And then he says, and to exhortation. Now, exhortation, the words translated, the act of emboldening another in belief or a course of action, encouragement. Um, each of you have probably exhorted somebody in some fashion, even this last week. If you're in Christ and you're living a life where you're in contact with other believers, because it includes several facets to the word. It means to come alongside and comfort someone who's doubting, someone who's discouraged, and to bring the word to bear in the form of an exhortation. It means to confront, to um, confront and to show the word of God and to show somebody their error. It means to warn of dangers. It can include rebuke. And all Christians uh, typically use the word of God in an authoritative way in this way. When we bring the word of God to bear, these aren't my words. I can try to comfort you with my words, but oh, how a psalm, oh, how a scripture just brings balm like your words cannot do. And so this is how we, this is one of the ways in which this applies to all of us, how we ought to bring the word to bear. Now, in the Acts passage, I shouldn't have had you flip back. We're not going to go back there. But when it says, do you have a word of exhortation in the text there, in verse 16 of Acts 13, that word of exhortation was a sermon. So it can actually be included in it, the public delivery of, 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 the, of preaching or expounding uh, biblical text. And so bringing it to bear in that way as well. So the word of exhortation for Paul was a sermon <laughs> preached on the scriptures. And that sort of ties it together with the reading earlier in the verse. Public reading of scripture to exhortation and to teaching, he says, finally. Doctrine is important and positive instruction is important. Now, primarily in the main preaching service, but most certainly in Sunday school classes, children's Sunday school, every time there's instruction, informal instruction in my home and in your home for family worship, this is altogether important. So whether it's in a public sphere or in a private setting, teaching is important. Now, and related to Timothy in particular here, I think it has the public idea to it. And you'll remember when... 
in Acts chapter 6 when we saw deacons um, being appointed there. What did the uh, apostles say? We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And so when pastors read the Word of God, when they exposit the Word of God, when they seek to bring application of the Word into the individual heart and lives of each Christian that is listening, they're fulfilling the ministry of the Word. In fact, John MacArthur says this is the heart and soul of the ministry since the Word is the only source of life and truth. See, teaching, giving uh, exhortation, bringing the Word to bear, that's the heart of the life of a minister. And biblical exposition is essential to the maturation of the people of God. It is essential to the overall health of a church. When you begin to remove the sermon out of the way, the church becomes weak. When you fill it with just some fanciful liturgies and a rock band performance and all of that, the people are not equipped. They do not know how to live. They don't know where to go in the Word of God for certain situations. And so biblical exposition is essential. It's it's mandatory in the church. And so you young people who are here, don't lament that, oh, another sermon. Oh, here... I've got to listen to another sermon again. Oh, don't lament that. Look forward to that and see it as the very words of life. Not, not Kurt Aaron's craftfully words because I stutter and, you know, it's the Word of God coming through me by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only authority that I have. Notice that Paul did not tell Timothy to. Well, give attention to reading in Scripture when it's convenient, but feel free to remove the sermon, to remove the Scripture reading in place of drama or in place of giving a pep talk of ten ways to become a better you, uh, as some do. He does not give him that authority. He says, give attention, pour yourself out in these three areas, to the public reading, to exhortation, and to teaching, that is to exposition of the authoritative Word of God. So, Paul urges a public ministry that reads the Scriptures and to the gathered um, body of believers that comes together to exhort them to respond and teach them the principles of how to live. So that's in the beginning, verses 11 and 13. How do we handle the Word with authority? It's in these ways. Now, We'll spend most of our time, the rest of our time, on verse 12. Does your life support your professed doctrine? And it's interesting, and I I struggle with how to break up the text, but I broke it up as I just said. But verse 11 is connected to verse 12. In fact, verse 11 sets the stage for verse 12. Verse 12 is so important and short because the instruction of commanding and teaching these things might be met with some resistance from a young minister. It might be met with some questions like, who are we to listen to this young man? And so it might be, there there may be some resistance here because of Timothy's age. And so what Paul does is he says, show yourself an example in word and in deed of godliness. And in these several areas that he lists here, show yourself an example brothers and sisters, no matter what your age is, an example, a good example to others. 
And Paul doesn't tell them, try to, here, list out all your credentials, you know, so that they must listen to you, you know. Tell them, show them this letter that I've written to you so that they'll know that to listen. No, he says, no, they're going to look down. They may be looking down on your youthfulness, but rather prove yourself to be a good example of faith and love, of word and in conduct and these things by your very life. In verse 12, he says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Probably better translated to those who believe, that is, to the faithful, to believers. Show yourself an example to those in the church as a gospel minister. Show yourself as an example. And, you know, we, we don't know exactly how old Timothy was. We don't have his birth certificate, but uh, theologians have done a little bit of uh, uh, figuring and so forth. And you remember, when did Timothy come on the scene? It's Acts chapter 16. It's some 12, 13 years before this time, okay? And we see that Timothy there, it was A.D. 51. Most believe he was between 23 and 26 years old. He joins the Apostle Paul. He's a co-laborer with Paul. And here now, he's probably about 36 to 40. You might say, well, that's not, that's not that young. I mean, I look up to people that are 30, you know. They're way older than me, maybe. You're, maybe you're thinking. Well, the word that Paul uses here in the original, the youthfulness, typically meant anyone under 40 was considered young. Now, some of the rabbis might say that, well, if he's 30 or 35, we can give him a little bit of authority, but, you know, he's, he's still a young buck, you know. We, we still we have to be very careful. He's a whippersnapper, to use modern vernacular. And the, the, when it says, let no one look down, it literally means to think down. It's a Greek compound, to think down upon Timothy. Don't let him think down upon you, but rather, by a good example, show yourself a good example to them. Now, older age and experience, as you know, when we went through the qualifications, is vital for pastoral ministry. We don't appoint 18-year-old elders over the flock, even elders in their young 20s. It's just typically not the norm. Um, There needs to be some type of age, some type of life experience. There needs to be one that has been tested in several spheres of life. Um, the old covenant was the same way. The priest became priest typically at age 35. But having said all that, sometimes God is pleased to astound us with someone who is unusually gifted and mature for their age. You might think through church history, you can probably think of a series of such people whom God has used in this way. You see, people would not despise um, young young men, if they could admire their example. Let me just give you a few examples of these unusual, uh, and I do mark the words, unusual circumstances. Think of C.H. Spurgeon, converted at age 15, tricked into preaching his first sermon at age 16, as him and his buddy were going along the way, um, their... Uh, their instructor told them, go and visit this house. And, and he told each of them, don't worry, the other guy's going to preach. And so Spurgeon's going along, well, this would be great to hear my buddy preach and all that. And then he's, as they're talking, well, wait a minute, he told me you were going to preach. What? 
So Spurgeon ends up preaching his first message there in that little house church. But at 16 years old, he does that. At 17, he's called to be pastor at Water Beach Chapel. By age 19, he's called to go to New Park Street Chapel. And that's where John Gill, John Rippon, 200 years of history of solid Baptist sound theologians ministered. And the church that sat 1,200 people was down to 200. And they said, well, come for six months. He says, you know, I don't want to waste your time or my time. I'll, I'll give you three months. By then, I think we'll all know. That place was packed out by the end of three months. And before he was 20, he was preaching to thousands and ultimately married. One of those people that was uh, in that audience that first time he preached would be his future wife, Susanna. And uh, she was one of those that kind of snickered, who is this young guy? Look at that, malt, that checkered handkerchief. We don't have those kind in London, you know, because he, he was a country boy. Anyway, I'm going off topic here. But, but you, you see, that is a man that was unusually marked with gifts and graces far beyond what the norm is. Other examples, Christopher Love, the Presbyterian Puritan, uh, who was beheaded in 1653, falsely accused at the age of 32. He's left, enough be- he's left enough behind to fill 20 volumes of sermons, of which eight have been republished, and I have all eight of those. They are, um, they are a gold mine. The letters between Christopher Love and his wife as he was awaiting execution are absolutely worth reading and reading on a regular basis. Robert Murray McShane, 1800s in Scotland, um, died at the age of 30 and yet faithfully pastored, went to Israel, traveled abroad so many times. Another Scottish man in the Puritan era died at the age of 22 years old, Andrew Gray, and left behind enough material to fill one large volume of works. These men were committed to what God had for them at a young age. They did not squander their education. They did not set that aside. They were wholly focused on glorifying God with their life and being faithful unto death. And they laid aside anything that would distract. And with wholehearted devotion, pressed forward to declare Christ as the only Savior to the world. These are unusual men. David Brainerd pours himself out to the ministry of Indians, freezing to death, nearly freezing to death several times. Read his diary. Died at the age of 29 years old in the home of Jonathan Edwards. You see, Timothy was one of these such men. He was an unusually gifted man. And Paul saw that in him. Paul grants great authority, but he knows that he needs to be nursed along and needs to be given these commands. And so as Paul sets forth the marks of a good minister, he's speaking to his son, the son who he cares for so much, the son who came to faith under the Apostle Paul's teaching likely. And he's telling him, be faithful in these things. Prescribe and teach these things that I've been setting before you. And let no one look down on your youthfulness. I know you're a young buck, but I know what you're made of, Timothy. And show yourself an example in word and deed as you have to me. And so the admonition goes out to you people here today. How will you show yourself an example? 
these examples that I've just gave did not let age deter them from being useful in the kingdom of God. They lived as examples and they had a very effective ministry. And you young people need to think, how will I, what examples will I set for others? What examples will I set for the boy at school, for the girl on the playground, before the neighbors? What kind of example will I set? One of the Puritans said, example is the best rhetoric. You can just talk all day long. Show me by your example, and I'll show you what a man really is. And you young people, the way to overcome the tendency of others looking down on you, I remember what it's like to be a young person. I remember what it's like to be a teenager. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm mature. I'm more mature than what my age is. If only people could see it, <laughs> right? That's the way most young people think. Show yourself by your life. Demonstrate your maturity by your life and your conduct, by your words and your deeds. Show us that you're more mature. And that goes for any of you, young adults, middle-aged. We need to strive to be useful. And I've been encouraged in the past week that two young people has come to talk to me in the last week, two different ones, saying that the Lord is working in their heart. They're sensing conviction of sin and one is believed, and, and these are encouraging things. And, and we, we need to throw away the 21st century mindset that, you know, my parents have a nice house, and I've got my own room, and I even have a game room, and, you know, I'm just going to take my time and go to college and take maybe one class once a year. And, and you have these men, and sometimes women that are 30, 35, 40 years old, still living in their parents' home, and they haven't even taken the responsibility to live their life on their own independently. Away with such rubbish of squandering the years, squandering the days. It is so foreign to any other time in history. So Paul here tells Timothy to be an example. Show yourself an example, a command. The word for example here is tupos. It means to mark or to um, leave a mark from a stroke. It's the words that Doubting Thomas said he wanted to see the imprint in Jesus' hand. You remember he says, be not unbelieving, but be believing. That's the word that's used. That's the example. That's the impression of the nail that's the force of this word. Now, the secondary meaning means to be, uh, 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 speaks to behavior and pattern and model and example. You might think of a cattle brand that, you know, the Aaron Farm, we have a big A. You know, we burn it on the bottom of all the cattle. Um, we've left an example. We've left a mark there to identify them. Um, I heard it illustrated like this. Robert Elliott brought this up at family camp. You know, if you're in a beanbag chair, you know what those are. And you sit down in that beanbag chair. When you get up, what's left there? There's an impression of your backside left in that beanbag chair. Well, to the same degree, we leave impressions on others as we are an example of either good or an example of wickedness. Paul speaks to this theme again and again, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. 
to that young church in Thessalonica, he tells them as he encourages them, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Chapter 1 and verse 6. What impression are you leaving? What impression have you left this last week to your brother, sister, parent, neighbor, friend at school? Elders are also told to be examples, aren't they? The same word is used in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3. Not lording it over them, not lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. How much more the call is to an elder or deacon, to officers of the church in that context, elders. It's very convicting as you pause and just examine your life and think about, you know, I could have been a better example there. I could have held my tongue there. I could have been more edifying with my speech. Well, having introduced just this first line, let's go ahead and look at what Paul tells him to be an example in five areas here. To be an example. And so does your life back up your profession? These are areas that we can consider. And first he says, speech. In all your personal conversation, is it edifying? Is it seasoned with grace? Have you ever been to a restaurant? And maybe you've ordered French fries and you grab the salt shaker and you're just looking at that. You say, you know, just a little salt and pepper just really make this just right. And the salt just pours out. And then you've got to like try to wipe that off and it's still way too salty. That's not seasoned very well, is it? And some Christians can allow their speech to be like that. Just have a bunch of salt and let me rub it in your wound. That's unwholesome speech. We want our speech to be seasoned with grace. Paul addresses this topic much in Colossians and Ephesians. You can read that later. Um, For further application, Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. So, in summary, to be a good example, we don't speak in anger, we don't talk back, we don't talk out of place, we don't have malice, we don't have filthy talk, but rather positively, Everything we say ought to be true. It ought to be unto edification. It ought to be done in a tender way. Well, the second word he uses is conduct. Conduct. And conduct has the idea of principles of a way of life. How do you live your life? What is your conduct? What is your behavior? Uh, That's what it's speaking to. And Paul in in Colossians 3.17 takes both of these ideas and puts them together. Whatever you do in word and deed, do all to the glory. Do all to, I'm sorry, giving thanks through through him to God the Father. Do all the Lord Jesus. So we're to be holy in all our conduct. That is to have biblical convictions about things. To actually know what you think and to have a conviction about it. James says in chapter 3 and verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. You want to take the litmus test and see if you're wise? Are you showing by your good behavior others around you? Conduct and speech go so together. In fact, 
You remember in Matthew chapter 7, we won't turn there, when those people say, but Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name and do that in your name? He says, I never knew you. Those were superficial words, superficial acts of whatever. Conduct and speech go together. Richard Baxter warns pastors to watch how they live. He says, lest you may unsay with your lives that which you say with your tongues. Well, those quotes are from Reformed Pastor. You see, your life will either contradict the truth of God and the truth you profess, the truth you claim to adhere, or it will confirm it. You know, he said this, he says he lives like this, and you know what? I've seen him live. That's how he really does live. It will confirm it. And this is why God hates hypocrisy so much. And it isn't hypocrisy a funny thing. We can spot it. I can spot it way in the back of the room, you know, or way behind the glass back there to somebody. But boy, it's so hard to see in yourselves sometimes, isn't it? You know, we can spot it in others. Uh, We can see the speck in our brother's eye or our sister's eye, all the while ignoring the two by four in our own eye. How we need to examine ourselves in these things. Well, quickly through the last three love 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 is a virtue of all virtues it it really sums up the first and second commandment love the lord your god with all your heart mind soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and and you kids listen all of you listen love is altogether different than what culture tells you what love is today it's altogether different biblical love involves sacrifice speaks here of a deep, meaningful attachment and affection for the brethren, a genuine concern for all men, whether in Christ or outside of Christ, even enemies seeking what is best for all. Colossians 3, Paul writing, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And then faith, rather show yourself an example in speech, conduct, love, and faith. Faith is a gift of God. This is what enables us to love. You can't love in a way that God asks you to, and not in any fashion, if you have not faith. Have you ever tried to love the unlovable before you came to faith in God? When we come to faith, we have an ability, an added ability to be able to do what he commands and to fulfill that. And then finally, purity. And this is important for all Christians. And the word purity here, it has the idea of remaining a virgin. It certainly has the idea of sex wrapped up into it. And purity is important for all Christians. And it's an indispensable, uh, it's indispensable for the pastor. It's a non-negotiable for any who are in public uh, ministry, and it's a non-negotiable for any who take the name of Christ. It has the idea of remaining a virgin for the sake of purity, but not that we're commanded to do that by any stretch of the imagination. It means it's a quality of moral purity, being chaste, fidelity. Paul would tell Timothy in in 2 Timothy, flee youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, and love, and peace with those who, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's a dreadful thing. I saw another survey this week. The survey is about 20 years old, 
but it was a survey, a private survey that was conducted among Protestant clergy. Now that includes Episcopal, Anglican, you know, the whole gamut. But the result of that was that 30% of Protestant clergy had engaged in sexual conduct with someone other than their spouse. It's just absolutely dreadful. And that was in 1988. So you can imagine what the number is now today. And Satan loves to trip up those in leadership, be it deacons, be it elders. There's a target on our backs. And so this is why we need the prayers of the people of God. We need to live principal lives, certainly. But God uses means. And the prayers of God's people are one of those intricate means. Paul again and again says, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. Robert Murray McShane, of who I spoke earlier, said, what my people need most is my personal holiness. That's the impact of example. My personal holiness is what my people need most, speaking of his church members. Paul says, having these qualities, Timothy, you will be an example to believers. Demonstrate this in life. You'll be spiritually mature and you'll be qualified to lead and teach. Just imagine for a moment someone that's a pastor that's unlovable that's living an immoral lifestyle and like i know of some situations where half the church knew it and he was still the pastor um unlovable lacking compassion on the sheep Uh, uh, just imagine such a man that's not a minister that's not god's minister you must agree with calvin when he says that sound biblical teaching will be of little worth if there is not a corresponding uprightness and holiness of life. You may get all the doctrine right. You may be able to cross your T's, dot your I's of the five points and all the mysteries of doctrine. But if it's not backed up by a life that seeks to please God, it's worthless. It's worthless. Well, in conclusion, let me ask you, is your doctrine confirmed by a pure life? I'm asking all of you, not just leaders in the church, not just those who aspire to be leaders, all of us. Do we handle the word with some authority? Not our own authority. It's God's authority, but it's God's word. And do we bring it to bear in situations? Do we come, uh, it, do we come eagerly to the word? And then does our life support our professed doctrine? You see, I think with this many people here, it's true to say that there are some who are living inconsistent lives whose examples are not worth the dirt on the ground and how we need to be moved and how each of us need to be moved and especially you if, I, if, that's who I'm, if this applies to you to live a life that is honoring to the Lord if you take the name of Christ there is nothing that will hinder your witness more than being a bad example to others prove yourself a good example to everyone around you Prove yourself an example to your children, to your co-workers, to your neighbors. You children, prove yourself an example to your brother and your sister. Take the high road. You don't always have to exert your rights. Prove yourself an example. Look up to good examples. There are several around you. I read a story this week of a man several years ago in a church in a small town. Later became the president of Navigators. Uh, after church, he noticed a woman had a flat tire in the parking lot. He stripped his jacket and his tie, 
changed the tire, and that one act of kindness was remembered long after all of his sermons were done, all of his sermons, you know, he's moved on, the church was no longer in place, but the community remembered that and still talked about that one act of kindness. Actions and deeds really can leave a lasting impression on others. What impression are you leaving today? Brethren, we must be committed to the authority of the word, reading it privately, meditating on it, chewing the cud, practicing it, applying it in our lives, instructing our children, sharing it with the lost and dying world, but also on the public aspect of it to come eagerly to hear the word read, to hear the word opened up in some fashion in its various means, whether it's home Bible studies, Sunday school classes, but especially the main worship service. And maybe some of you here today have not yet trusted Christ, some of you young people. We've been talking about the Word of God, and this Word points to one grand theme. You know, you might think, well, you know, 1,500 pages, where do I begin? Well, I can tell you, it speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to die for unworthy sinners. The entire Bible points to Him. And the question that you must ask is, how can I be acceptable to Him? He's a holy God. He's just. He's righteous in all His ways. He knows my heart. How can I be acceptable? It's not trusting in your good works because your works are going to damn you. We've all sinned. You must realize that you've offended a holy God and to pray for forgiveness. Realize that the Scriptures speak even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died in our place on the cross took the punishment we believed, but we must believe. We must trust. We must say there's nothing in my hand, nothing I can do by my works to be saved and look to Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that, I encourage you. I warn you, do it today because you know not if you'll have tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this rich section in First Timothy. We thank you, Lord, for its application to each one of us. Lord, may you forgive us for our sins, forgive us for our examples that we have set when it's not been good. Give us the strength, give us the conviction, give us the ability, give us the resolve to live lives that will leave a legacy behind, to live lives that will be pleasing to you on into eternity. Help us, Lord, in word and deed to do that which brings glory to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.